Welcome to Grey 2 Movies Presents Darkness in the Film Industry. This is a 20-part series detailing certain acts and behaviours of particular actors, film producers, directors and other socials within the film industry. This is not for the faint of heart. This 20-part series will detail certain events and circumstances in relation to child abuse, conspiracies, general abuse, and even murder. Please listen at your own discretion. Thank you, and enjoy the episode. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Gruesome Twosome Movie Reviewsome, and also welcome back to episode three of the 20-part series, Darkness in the Film Industry, where I, your host Ebony, will deep dive and discuss particular actions and behaviours of those within the film industry. This includes details on events and circumstances in relation to child abuse, conspiracies, and even murder. Before we get into episode three, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, I'd just like to say that during this series, I will not be discussing Army Hammer or Harvey Weinstein. I believe both of these figures have been discussed in detail recently that I would not be adding anything new to the discussion. Now, with that being said, let's get started on episode three, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. The early years. Roscoe Arbuckle was born on March 24th, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas, one of nine children of Mary E. Gordon and William Goodrick Arbuckle. He weighed in excess of 13 pounds or 5.9 kilograms at birth, and his father believed that he was illegitimate as both parents had slim builds. Consequently, he named him after Senator Roscoe Conklin of New York, a notorious philanderer whom he despised. The birth was traumatic for Mary and resulted in chronic health problems that contributed to her death 11 years later. Arbuckle was nearly two when his family moved to Santa Ana, California. He first performed on stage with Frank Bacon's company, at age eight during their performance in Santa Ana. Arbuckle enjoyed performing and continued on until his mother's death in 1898 when he was 11. Arbuckle's father had always treated him harshly and now refused to support him, so he got work doing odd jobs in a hotel. He was in the habit of singing while he worked and a professional singer heard him and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show. The show consisted of the audience judging acts by clapping or jeering, with bad acts pulled off the stage by a shepherd's crook. Arbuckle sang, danced, and did some clowning around, but he did not impress the audience. He saw the crook emerging from the wings and somersaulted into the orchestra pit in an obvious panic. The audience went wild and he won the competition and began a career in vaudeville. Arbuckle, the comedian. Despite his physical size, Arbuckle was remarkably agile and acrobatic. Mark Sennett, when recounting his first meeting with Arbuckle, noted that he skipped up the stairs as lightly as Fred Astaire and that he, without warning, went into a feather-light step, clapped his hands, and did a backward somersault as graceful as a girl tumbler. His comedies are noted as rollicking and fast-paced, have many chase scenes, and feature sight gags. Arbuckle was fond of the pie in the face, a popular comedy cliché. In 1914, Paramount Pictures made the unheard of offer of $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits and complete artistic control to make movies with Arbuckle and Normand. The movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, they offered Arbuckle a three-year, $3 million contract, which is equivalent to roughly $54 million <laughs> now. In 1916, Arbuckle was experienced serious health problems. An infection that developed on his leg became a carbuncle so severe that doctors considered amputation. Although Arbuckle was able to keep his leg, he was prescribed morphine against the pain. He would later be accused of being addicted to the morphine. Following his recovery, Arbuckle started his own film company, Comique, 
in partnership with Joseph Sh- sorry in partnership with Joseph Schenk. Although Kamik produced some of the best short pictures of the silent era, Arbuckle transferred his controlling interest in the company to Buster Keaton in 1918 and accepted Paramount's $3 million offer to make up to 18 feature films over three years. Arbuckle disliked his screen nickname. Fatty had also been Arbuckle's nickname since school. It was inevitable, he said. Fans also called Roscoe the Prince of Wales, W-H-A-L-E-S, and the Balloonatic. However, the name Fatty identifies the character that Arbuckle portrayed on screen, usually a naive hayseed, not Arbuckle himself. When Arbuckle portrayed a female, the character was named Miss Fatty, as in the film Miss Fatty's Seaside Lovers. Arbuckle discouraged anyone from addressing him as Fatty off screen, and when they did so, his usual response was, I've got a name you know, The Scandal. On September 5th, 1921, Arbuckle took a break from his hectic film schedule and despite suffering from second-degree burns to both buttocks from an onset accident, drove to San Francisco with two friends, Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback. The three checked into three rooms at the St. Francis Hotel, 12.19 for Arbuckle and Fishback to share and 12.21 for Sherman and 12.20 designated as a party room. Several women were invited to the suite. During the carousing, a 30-year-old aspiring actress named Virginia Rapp was found seriously ill in room 12.19 and was examined by the hotel doctor, who concluded her symptoms were mostly caused by intoxication and gave her morphine to calm her. Rapp was not hospitalised until two days after the incident. At the hospital, Rapp's companion at the party, Bambina Maud Delmont, told a doctor that Arbuckle had raped her friend. The doctor examined Rapp, but found no evidence of rape. She died one day after the hospitalisation from peritonitis caused by a ruptured bladder. Rapp suffered from chronic urinary tract infections, a condition that liquor irritated dramatically. Delmont then told police that Arbuckle had raped Rapp. The police concluded that the impact of Arbuckle's overweight body lying on top of Rapp had eventually caused her bladder to rupture. At a later press conference, Rapp's manager, Al Shimnaka, <laughs> I'm butchering these names, accused Arbuckle of using a piece of ice to simulate sex with Rapp, thus leading to her injuries. By the time the story was reported in newspapers, the object had evolved into a Coca-Cola or champagne bottle rather than a piece of ice. In fact, witnesses testified that Arbuckle rubbed the ice on Rapp's stomach to ease her abdominal pain. Arbuckle denied any wrongdoing. Delmont later made a statement incriminating Arbuckle to the police in an attempt to extort money from Arbuckle's attorneys. Arbuckle's trial was a major media event. The story was fueled by yellow journalism with the newspapers portraying Arbuckle as a gross, le- gross lecher who used his weight to overpower innocent girls. William Randolph Hearst's nationwide newspaper chain exploited the situation with exaggerated and sensationalized stories. Hearst was gratified by the profits he accrued during the Arbuckle scandal and he later said it had sold more newspapers than the sinking of Lusitania. I don't know if I said that right. <laughs> Morality groups called for Arbuckle to be sentenced to death. The resulting scandal destroyed Arbuckle's career along with his personal life. Arbuckle was regarded by those who knew him closely as a good-natured man who was shy around women. He has been described as the most chaste man in pictures. However, studio executives fearing negative publicity by association ordered Arbuckle's industry friends and fellow actors, whose careers they controlled, not to publicly speak up for him. Charlie Chaplin, who was in Britain at the time, told reporters that he could not and would not believe that Arbuckle had anything to do with Rapp's death. Having known Arbuckle since they worked at Keystone in 1914, 
Chaplin knew Roscoe to be a genial, easy-going type who would not harm a fly. Buster Keaton reportedly did make one public statement in support of Arbuckle's innocence, a decision which earned him a mild reprimand from the studio where he worked. Film actor William S. Hart, who had never met or worked with Arbuckle, made a number of damaging public statements in which he presumed that Arbuckle was guilty. Arbuckle later wrote a premise for a film parodying Hart as a thief, bully, and wife-beater, which Keaton, which Keaton purchased from him. The resulting film, The Frozen North, was released in 1922, almost a year after the scandal had first emerged. Keaton co-wrote, directed, and starred in the picture, consequently. Hart refused to speak to Keaton for many years. This time, Dana DeVito becomes pregnant. Who knew? <laughs> 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 doesn't mouth the words at all. He's, he's just mouthing, like, opening his mouth up and down like a puppet. <laughs> now, let's get this show started. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Snippets of Critically Optimistic. If you like what you hear, come join us as we create fun and exciting double features that pair two films together with interesting themes. We even offer up some shorter shows where we talk about new films to just hit theaters and various topics within the filming community. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts and we release on a bi-weekly schedule every other Tuesday. We love to include our audience by answering questions on the show or reading feedback. So get listening and be part of the Critically Optimistic Friends. See you then. The First Trial On September 17, 1921, Arbuckle was arrested and arraigned on charges of manslaughter. He arranged bail after nearly three weeks in jail. The trial began November 14, 1921 in the city courthouse in San Francisco. Arbuckle hired as his lead defense counsel Gavin McNabb, a competent local attorney. At the beginning of the trial, Arbuckle told his already estranged wife, Minta Defee, that he did not harm Rob. She believed him and appeared regularly in the courtroom to support him. Public feeling was so negative that Defee was later shot at while entering the courthouse. Just being shot at for supporting your husband. I mean, I get that, you know, the accusations were made and, and they're disgusting and very full on, but being shot at for being associated... Bit much. Brady's first witnesses during the trial included Betty Campbell, a model who attended the party and testified that she saw Arbuckle with a smile on his face hours after the alleged rape occurred. Grace Holston, a local hospital nurse who testified it was very likely that Arbuckle raped Rapp and bruised her body in the process, and Dr. Edward Heinrich, a local criminologist who claimed that the fingerprints on the door to the hallway proved that Rapp had tried to flee but that Arbuckle had stopped her by putting his hand over hers. Dr. Arthur Beardsley, the hotel doctor who had examined Rapp, testified that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder. During cross-examination, however, Campbell revealed that Brady had threatened to charge her with perjury if she did not testify against Arbuckle. Dr. Heinrich's claim to have found fingerprints was cast into doubt after McNabb produced a maid from the St. Francis Hotel, who testified that she had thoroughly cleaned the room before the investigation took place. Dr. Beardsley admitted that Rapp had never mentioned being assaulted while he was treating her. McNabb was furthermore able to get Nurse Holston to admit that the rupture of Rapp's bladder could very well have been a result of cancer and that the bruises on her body could also have been a result of the heavy jewellery she was wearing that evening. 
On November 28, Arbuckle testified as a defence's final witness. He was simple, direct and unflustered in both direct and cross-examination. In his testimony, Arbuckle claimed that Raab, whom he testified he had known for five or six years, came into the party room 12.20 around noon that day and that sometime afterward he went into his room 12.19 to change clothes after May Torb, daughter-in-law of Billy Sunday, asked him for a ride into town. In his room, Arbuckle discovered Rap in the bathroom vomiting into the toilet. He then claimed Rap told him she felt ill and asked to lie down, and that he carried her into the bedroom and asked a few of the party guests to help treat her. When Arbuckle and a few of the guests re-entered the room, they found Rap on the floor near the bed, tearing at her clothing and going into violent convulsions. To calm Rap down, they placed her in a bathtub of cool water. Arbuckle and Fishbuck then took her into the room 1227 and called the hotel manager and doctor. At this point, all those present thought Rap was just very drunk, including the hotel doctors. Probably assuming Rap would sleep it off, Arbuckle drove Torb into town. During the whole trial, the prosecution presented medical descriptions of Rap's bladder as evidence that she had an illness. In his testimony, Arbuckle denied he had any knowledge of Rap's illness. During cross-examination, Assistant District Attorney Leo Friedman aggressively grilled Arbuckle over the fact that he had refused to call a doctor when he found Rap sick and argued that he refused to do so because he knew Rap's illness and saw a perfect opportunity to rape and kill her. Arbuckle calmly maintained that he never physically hurt or sexually assaulted Rap in any way during the party and he also stated that he never made any inappropriate sexual advances against any woman in his life. After over two weeks of testimony with 60 prosecution and defence witnesses, including 18 doctors who testified about Rapp's illness, the defence rested. On December 4th, 1921, the jury returned five days later deadlocked after nearly 44 hours of deliberation. The 10-2 not guilty verdict and a mistrial was declared. Arbuckle's attorneys later concentrated their attention on one woman named Helen Hubbard, who had told jurors that she would vote guilty until hell freezes over. She refused to look at the exhibit or read the trial transcripts, having made up her mind in the courtroom. Hubbard's husband was a lawyer who did business with the DA's office and expressed surprise that she was not challenged when selected for the jury pool. While much attention was paid to Hubbard after the trial, some former jury members told reporters that they believed that Arbuckle was indeed guilty, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. During the deliberation, some jurors joined Hubbard in voting to convict, but they all recanted except for Thomas Kilkenny. Arbuckle researcher Joan Myers describes the political climate and the media attention to the presence of women in juries, which had only been legal for four years at that time, and how Arbuckle's defence immediately singled out Hubbard as a villain. Myers also records Hubbard's account of the jury foreman August Fritz's attempts to bully her into changing her vote to not guilty. While Hubbard offered explanations on her vote whenever challenged, Kilkenny remained silent and quickly faded from media spotlight after the trial ended. The Second Trial the second trial began January 11, 1922, with a new jury but the same legal defence and prosecutions as well as the same presiding judge. The same evidence was presented, but this time one of the witnesses, Zay Prevon, testified that Brady had forced her to lie. Another witness who testified during the first trial, a former Culver Studios security guard named Jesse Norgard, testified that Arbuckle had once shown up to the studio and offered him a cash bribe in exchange for the key to Rob's dressing room. The comedian supposedly said he wanted it to play a joke on the actress. Norgard said that he refused to give him the key. During cross-examination, Norgard's testimony was called into question when he was revealed to be an ex-convict 
who was currently charged with sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl and who was also looking for a sentence reduction from Brady in exchange for his testimony. Further, in contrast to the first trial, Rapp's history of promiscuity and heavy drinking was detailed. The second trial also discredited some major evidence, such as the identification of Arbuckle's fingerprints in the hotel bedroom door. Heinrich took back his earlier testimony from the first trial and testified that the fingerprint evidence was likely faked. The defense was so convinced in an acquittal that Arbuckle was not called to testify. His lawyer McNabb made no closing argument to the jury. However, some jurors interpreted the refusal that Arbuckle testify as a sign of guilt. After five days and over 40 hours of deliberation, the jury returned on February 3rd, deadlocked with a 10-2 majority in favour of conviction, resulting in yet another mistrial. When we come home from a long day of teaching kids or laying pipe, we find a long list of responsibilities just waiting for us at home, like wrangling our kids or taking them to their activities, cooking a meal, doing the laundry, or just picking up everyone else's shit. And how do we decide to use the minute amount of free time that we actually do have? We gave ourselves yet another job and we started a podcast. We wanted a space where we could talk about the things we love, such as sports, movies, music, and our families. And we also wanted a place to vent about the things that bother us, like our coworkers, or if our favorite team missed the playoffs in the last game of the season, or if McDonald's decides that they don't have any large lids, even though they're a huge company that should never have that problem. You know, when I think of the dynamic of our podcast, I think of myself as like the tough power forward like Owen Nolan, where you kind of remind me of a speed finesse type player like Patrick Marlowe. I see what you're saying. When I look at our dynamic on the podcast, I see myself like Thierry Henry, smooth like butter on the pitch, ready to score that goal. And I see you like Zinedine Zidane, ready to headbutt any asshole that gets in your way. We talk about these topics and so much more on Level the Playing Field. Check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. The Third Trial By the time of Arbuckle's third trial, his films had been banned and newspapers had been filled for the past seven months with stories of Hollywood orgies, murders, and sexual perversion. Delmont was touring the country giving one-woman shows as the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle and lecturing on the evils of Hollywood. The third trial began on March 13, 1922, and this time the defence took no chances. McNabb took an aggressive defence, completely tearing apart the prosecution's case with long and aggressive examination and cross-examination of each witness. McNabb also also managed to get in still more evidence about Rapp's lurid past and medical history. Another hole in the prosecution's case was opened because Previn, a key witness, was out of the country after fleeing police custody and unable to testify. As in the first trial, Arbuckle testified as the final witness and again maintained his denials in his heartfelt testimony about his version of the events at the party. Buster Keaton is said to have been in the courtroom and provided important evidence to prove Arbuckle's innocence. Delmont was involved in prostitution, extortion and blackmail. During closing statements, McNabb reviewed how flawed the case was against Arbuckle from the very start and how Brady fell for the outlandish charges of Delmont, whom McNabb described as the complaining witness who never witnessed. The jury began deliberations April 12 and took only six minutes to return with a unanimous not guilty verdict. Five of those minutes were spent writing a formal statement of apology to Arbuckle for putting him through the ordeal. A dramatic move in American justice. The jury statement, as read by the jury foreman, stated, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done here. We feel also that it was only our plan, duty to give him the exoneration under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof produced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence showed 
Joe's was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. After the reading of the apology statement, the jury foreman personally handed the statement to Arbuckle, who kept it as a treasured memento for the rest of his life. Then one by one, the 12-person jury plus the two jury alternates walked up to Arbuckle's defence table, where they shook his hand and or embraced and personally apologised to him. The entire jury proudly posed with Arbuckle for photographers after the verdict and apology. Some experts later concluded that Rapp's bladder might also have ruptured as a result of an abortion she might have had a short time before the fateful party. Her organs had been destroyed and it was now impossible to test for pregnancy. Because alcohol was consumed at the party, Arbuckle was forced to plead guilty to one account of violating the Volstead Act and had to pay a $500 fine. At the time of his acquittal, he owed over $700,000, which is a equivalent to approximately $11,300,000 now in legal fees to his attorneys for the three criminal trials and he was forced to sell his house and all of his cars to pay some of the debt. The scandal and trials had greatly damaged Arbuckle's popularity among the general public. In spite of the acquittal and the apology, his reputation was not restored and the effects of the scandal continued. Will H. Hayes, who served as the head of the newly formed Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America, censor board, cited Arbuckle as an example of the poor morals in Hollywood. On April 18, 1922, six days after Arbuckle's acquittal, Hayes banned him from ever working in the US movies again. He had also requested that all showings and bookings of Arbuckle films be cancelled and exhibitors complied. In December of the same year, under public pressure, Hayes elected to lift the band, however Arbuckle was still unable to secure work as an actor. Most exhibitors still declined to show Arbuckle's films, several of which now have no copies known to have survived intact. One of Arbuckle's feature-length films known to survive as Leap Year, which Paramount declined to release in the US owing to the scandal. It was eventually released in Europe. With Arbuckle's films now banned in March 22, Keaton signed an agreement to give Arbuckle 35% of all future profits from his production company, Buster Keaton Comedies, in hopes of easing his financial situation. The Aftermath In November 1923, Minter Defee filed for divorce from Arbuckle, charging grounds of desertion. The divorce was granted the following January. They'd been separated since 1921, though Defee always claimed he was the nicest man in the world and they were still friends. After a brief reconciliation, Defee again filed for divorce, this time while in Paris, in December 1924. Arbuckle married Doris Dean on May 16, 1925. Arbuckle tried returning to filmmaking, but the industry resistance to distributing his pictures continued to linger after his acquittal. He retreated into alcoholism. In the words of his first wife, Roscoe only seemed to find solace and comfort in a bottle. Keaton attempted to help Arbuckle by giving him work on his films. Arbuckle wrote the story for a Keaton short called Daydreams in 1922. Arbuckle allegedly co-directed scenes in Keaton's Sherlock Jr. 1924, but it's unclear how much of the footage remained in the film's final cut. In 1925, Carter de Haven's short character studies shot before the scandal was released. Arbuckle appeared alongside Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, and Jackie Coogan. The same year in Photoplay's August issue, James R. Quirk wrote, I would like to see Roscoe Arbuckle make a comeback to the screen. He also said the American nation prides itself upon the spirit of fair play. We let the whole world to look upon America as the place where every man gets a square deal. Are you sure Roscoe Arbuckle is getting one today? I'm not. Eventually, Arbuckle worked as a director under the pseudonym William Goodrick. Author David Yollop cites Arbuckle's father's full name was William Goodrick Arbuckle as the inspiration behind the alias. Another tale credits Keaton, an inveterate punster, with suggesting that Arbuckle became a director under the alias Will Be Good. The pun being too obvious, Arbuckle adopted the more formal pseudonym 
William Goodrick Keaton, the pun being too obvious, Arbuckle adopted the more formal pseudonym William Goodrick. Keaton himself told this story during a recorded interview with Kevin Brownlow in the 1960s. Between 24 and 32, Arbuckle directed a number of comedy shorts under the pseudonym for educational pictures, which featured lesser-known comics of the day. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. There you go. The story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. It's sad when you think about it. If he's really that innocent and he's just gone through all of that, like that, it's absolutely horrible. It just goes to show, you know, anything can happen for from one little bit of footage, one story, one look. But yeah, that's that's it. So with that being said, I'm going to end it here. You now know a little bit more about some Hollywood history. <laughs> and tune in next week for episode four, Asia Agento. I hope you all have a fantastic evening, morning, day, whenever you're listening to this. And we'll talk again soon. Bye, guys. Hey, it's Ebony here, and I'm here to let you know that if you've enjoyed this episode of the Gruesome Twosome Movie Reviewsome, you can find us on other platforms. That's right, we are on Spotify, Apple, Good Pods, and more. You can also follow us on social media at G-R-U-E-T-W-O underscore movies. Gru2 underscore movies. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Hope to see you there.